Welcome to the Roadrunner Exchange, a show that features leaders from Metropolitan State University of Denver discussing the projects, initiatives, and decisions impacting our campus community. I'm your host, Dr. Samuel Jay, Director of Faculty Affairs at MSU Denver, and today I talk with Director of Government Affairs, Casey Gerhardt, about what's going on this legislative session when it comes to state funding for MSU Denver. But we talked about a lot of other stuff too. Hope you'll enjoy. your first podcast my very first really? my inaugural podcast but you've been on so many promotional videos that our wonderful marketing and communications team creates thank right? you and talk about uh what it is you do and all that fun stuff there's so many vehicles but for the podcast long time listener first time guest <laughs> yes <laughs> thank you uh can you introduce yourself absolutely casey gerhardt Director of Government Affairs at the wonderful MSU Denver. Um, we've been trying to get you on this podcast of ours for over a year now, um, but uh, thankfully the president had to pull some strings to get you on here. So, I like to uh, pretend it's because I'm in high demand. Yes, but. yes. Well, today, I mean, I really do appreciate you being here and joining me now because you are extremely busy, correct? Oh, a little bit, yes. <sighs> it's the peak of the legislative season, and as someone that got to witness the harriedness last year as my cube mate, you know, what this time yeah. looks like. Lots of moving pieces and an unpredictable schedule. Oh I'm glad gosh. I can make time for this today. We'll get into that for in, in a second. Uh, I purposely uh, provided Victoria, your, uh, your assistant, uh, your EA, with questions, yes. but I added a few because okay. I don't, yeah, I wanted to kind of, you know. I like the curveball. Yes, yes, yes. Um, <clears throat> how does Casey Gearhart get here? Like, like, like tell us. And then, My and then, own Yes, path. yes. Yes, because you have an interesting one. I, thanks, Sam. Um, so I've been in Colorado 12 years. Okay. I moved here after undergrad to teach K-12. So I moved to Denver, taught in Denver public schools. From where? Where did you move from? San Diego. Okay. Proud San Diego State alum. I studied finance. Graduated at the peak of the market crash. Okay. Super disillusioned by the sector and decided I wanted to do, some, to do something different. And so I ended up teaching for a handful of years. Algebra two and pre-calc at a okay. school just down the street, actually. Um, and a handful of my students ended up coming to MSU Denver Metro yeah. at the time um, and a proud alums, which okay. it's a cool for, full circle moment yeah, to think absolutely. about you know, where I was 12 years ago and then being on the campus now. This is going to sound really ignorant. And no, I'm sorry, I just cut you off. That was very uh, <laughs> okay. David Finey of me. Uh, uh, does a degree <laughs> in finance <laughs> translate to... I want to see if he listens to the podcast. Uh, does that translate to teaching algebra? I'm trying. I'm. I, okay. 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 I would have to say I studied a butt off. Yeah. For the lessons that I was then teaching a week later, I was about a week ahead and refreshing myself on the content. Okay. When I always told my friends that I would crush the SAT or the ACT. Yeah. Now. Yeah. But it was a lot of uh, relearning because, as you know. You learn all of those things in high school, but what I told my students is it's more about a way of thinking than it is calculating slope. There's very few professions where at the end of the day, you're going to be spending your nine to five mm -hmm. running algebraic equations, but if you can figure out how to solve for the missing variable, yeah. hell, that's a lesson you can apply to many aspects of your life. That's a really good point, and I'm, now I'm thinking about applying that to when I took the GRE. And mm -hmm. one of the things you learn is you don't want to solve the problem. You just want to figure out what the answer can't be. Yes, exactly. And, and so, yeah, that makes total sense, right? You got to move through there fast. You got yes. to move quick. Yeah, <sighs> eliminate, eliminate the other options on the table to arrive at the best 
the best possible one that you have in front of you. Which is what not, you do now, exactly. basically. Exactly. Uh, not dissimilar from the work we do to do today. We're not done telling your, let, let's get you to here first. Okay, sure. so you're teaching, um, and, and then what happens? Teaching, and then I went to work for a teacher preparation organization called Teach for America, which ah, is yeah. the licensure path that I was teaching through in the first place. Okay. So I was affiliated with that organization for about five years in total. Oh. And it was during that time that I got exposed to the broader policy landscape. Okay. It was so easy, especially in K-12, you're focused on the students that are immediately in front of you, and rightfully so. But you start to realize there's so many bigger pieces of the puzzle that impact your students' lives, impact the things that you can and can't do in the classroom. And it was when I stepped away from the classroom that I started to spend more time understanding the policy side of the equation um, and also the community component of the conversation. And so um, I did a little bit of fundraising and then from there transitioned into policy work, worked in the state legislature for a handful of years, yeah. and then did the whole campaign circuit for a handful of years got real tired yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. I, I consulted for a little bit and then I came to MSU Denver. Let's go back just a second um, with the policy stuff. Yeah. Did you, uh, did you, what's well, the best way to phrase this question? Did you know that you had this drive to think kind of big picture or was that a strength, a skill, a perspective that you kind of discovered as you were teaching and moving into more administrative stuff? I appreciate you asking that question because I feel like so often, especially younger folks that are in entry level or like mid-level policy professions, mm -hmm. the natural assumption is that you're cut from a certain cloth, you've always had this fascination with politics or policy and went through that sort of traditional interned on the Hill, went and worked on a campaign, worked in the legislature, and then get to have these cool in-house jobs where you get to think about policy in a certain context, like I have the, the fortune of doing today. And the funny thing is that if you asked me even 10 years ago that if I would have a job like I do now, I would have said absolutely not. I never saw myself in that space, and I mean that both figuratively and literally. I didn't study poli-sci, I never had aspirations to go to law school. When I first dipped my toe into policy, it was more out of a curiosity to say, well, there's a lot of things that are happening that I don't think actually realize the ends that the decision makers yeah. intend. Yeah. Where's that gap? And working towards bridging this idea of practitioner and having spent some time in, in a K-12 classroom and having that background and that network and then realizing that in conversations with the folks that are making that decision, so many of them don't necessarily have that lived experience. And that's really what drove my passion. Um, but I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, there's so many moments of insecurity, especially in my early career around like, again, studying up on yeah. bills and reading through legislative language. I mean, it's, it's a black box in so many ways. And as someone that really grew up outside of that environment to the point of not seeing yourself mm -hmm. in a literal way like there are many folks even now that that look like me that have similar racial backgrounds family backgrounds um, but that's also part of what drives me now yeah. is I think it's such a disservice especially in a democracy to make these opportunities in this understanding of policy making feel so out of reach especially for young people um, and I, 
think that's what's the coolest part about being able to do policy work at MSU Denver now. Are you the rarity when you are, you know, uh, talking and working, collaborating with your colleagues outside of MSU Denver? So I'm thinking, you know, Jeannie and Christine and Mike and those folks who uh, do some of the stuff that, that, that we require um, when it comes to legislative happenings. Uh, are you the rarity uh, as the kind of this outsider, this person who, who didn't study political science, or is that pretty common? I would say that it's probably more diverse in terms of prior professional or educational background than it is perceived. Okay. I think folks on the outside, understandably so, are sort of like, oh, that's this microcosm of a certain personality with certain types of interests that do that work. And there's some truth to that. And once you step into that circle, you realize, especially now, I think it's probably even more true than maybe it was 20 years ago, there's many more diverse perspectives, voices that are part of the policymaking and influencing work. What I think is the common thread is that folks that have been in this work for a handful of years or decades know the landscape. Mm -hmm. They know the people, they know the personalities, and that really is the difference maker yeah. between being super smart about policy, but not knowing the politics, yeah. and a, a truly effective advocate or lobbyist. And that touches back into my own passion around being able to widen the access paths, mm -hmm. because if you're not given the opportunity to learn about the personalities and the politics and all the dynamics at play, then you're at an inherent disadvantage for no good reason. You could be the smartest person in the room, um, but you're missing that piece and you gain that from exposure. And so that's what drives me. I feel like, you know, one of our trustees, Mike Johnston, is the legislator that I worked for and we just happened to have a couple of common connections and frankly he took a chance on me to say, hey, you wanna come work on my staff? I never saw myself in that role and so it made sense yeah. to, to jump at the chance. And it really did take someone seeing that in me and opening the door and that's what I want to do across the board. Our students rarely follow that traditional path. You and I, in this conversation, are two people that arguably did not follow that traditional path. Yep. What are the, can you articulate the advantages of having that real world experience, that unique path? What advantages does that bring to your position now? So often I see myself as a translator. Mm -hmm. I don't have our students' lived experience as a roadrunner, but I engage enough to be able to try to be the best advocate I can be in my job as I go across the street to the state capitol and bring their experiences to life for our legislators. And I like to believe that I have enough adjacency to be effective in both of those spaces. And I think that that's a big advantage of being able to have a diverse set of experiences and then come to roles like you and I have now because there's some kinship, there's some relational component to it mm -hmm. that we can build upon, whether it's trust, whether it's a version of a shared experience to say, when I hear your story, I have resonance, I have some understanding of, of how you're connecting the dots, and then I get to translate that to what another environment that I understand, which is the legislature. Mm -hmm. And to be able to bridge those connections, and then you know, ideally bring 
those two environments that sometimes feel so far apart, much closer together. Um, I think that's uniquely possible when you've had that diversity of experience as a first-gen student, as someone that knows this campus and has personal relationships with folks that have walked through this campus as a student in a, in a real way, as well as as someone that's worked in the legislature and understands intimately how things get done. <sighs> that's good stuff. We'll get to the JVC stuff, but I, I really, am, I, you know, we've never had one of these conversations where I've really asked you about your experience before you got here. Sure. Um, what does TV get right about the campaign? And what does it get wrong? Or Gosh. politics in general? Sure. Um, Big P politics. Yes. You know, you're making me think of the West Wing yep. and Veep and all of these mm -hmm. different depictions, um, much less murder than House of Cards. I can guarantee that. <laughs> um, no murder. Well, that should probably be on the record. What was that one with Kerry Washington? What was that show? Oh, Scandal. Scandal. So, so much murder in that. It's really very different from my experience, though. I try to channel okay. the fashion when okay. I can. There's a lot of things you can't say on this <laughs> podcast. Oh. Um, no, you know, I think Harkening specifically to, to the West Wing and people set the murder shows aside. Uh, there, there's modicums of truth in each of those. Yeah. And I'll throw Parks and Rec in there too, even though it's, okay. it's a little more slapsticky. But I, I touch on those because I think I was never a West Wing kid growing up. I'm, no, I'm not but, that old. Yeah, I, <laughs> and even people who are our age who watch it, I don't understand it. So, okay. <laughs> but I, I have a handful of friends who have been into it. I've seen episodes, and I feel like the takeaway is there's a sense of hopefulness that that show brought to folks, a sense that politics is a place where things get done. I, I think there's more mistrust of that principle these days. And I wish that weren't the case because, especially here in Colorado, controversially, I still think that this can be true at the federal level too. Politics is a place where things get done. Yeah. Not 100% right all of the time. Um, and it's a frustrating process to many. And sure, it moves slower than the change we want to see. And, and there's truth to all of that. But I'm still the person that finds hope in, yeah. in politics as a vehicle for change. I think if believing in democracy means that we have to put some trust in that process, and that's why participation matters yeah. so much to me. And so um, I'll take that tidbit from West Wing. There are moments of hilarity that probably don't mirror the depths of comedy of V, but there's some ridiculous things oh that you end up doing. I mean, yeah. there's times when that the job really is around the clock, and you can't work that hard without being able to laugh when you can as well. Um, oh my God. And, and I think, you know, on the Parks and Rec reference, there's some uh, wholeness mm -hmm. to it, some good heartedness that I also think drives the vast majority of the people that do this work. Especially in Colorado, elected official work is hard work that's around the clock that really isn't paid all that well in this yeah. state compared to others. You can't do a job like that without caring. And folks might have different interpretations, different value sets that make it seem on the outside that they're not motivated by the, by the same things that I would hope they're motivated by. But I really believe that that's more a reflection of different 
values and beliefs mm -hmm. than it is around a desire to do good. They're just interpreting it differently yeah. because the work's too damn hard to want to not take it seriously. That's, as you were talking, um, I was thinking about folks, if you really want to, like for those who really want a reality check, I think watch C-SPAN. Like in, in all seriousness, like yeah. watch what happens live in DC. Like it is so different from how it's framed in mainstream media. And I'm yeah. not attacking mainstream media, but I guess journalism just in general. Um, politics aren't inherently exciting, so they've got to be made exciting. You know, <laughs> and what happens when you do that is that you know the stories obviously start following you know meta narratives and not really the truth. Yeah. I'm the nerd that does think it, it's exciting, yeah. even yeah, though yeah. I understand that like it probably doesn't make for good TV. Um, but I think the people that do the work in and out, not only the elected officials, but their staff too, yeah. we, we do nerd out about this stuff um, yeah. because of all those things I just said, it, that we believe that it matters. And so we want to take it seriously and try to do the best, drive towards the best outcome in that the circumstance allows. I understand. I, I mean, I told you for five minutes prior to this all about teaching evaluations, and I can't imagine a lot of people like getting into the weeds when it comes to SRIs. But, uh, but right. it matters that there's someone it that cares. It matters. It matters. Okay, so uh, we've got 15 minutes here, give okay. or take. Let's get into the nitty gritty of, of uh, the the budget stuff. Sure. Can you let's can can we take a 30,000 foot view of this? Can you explain? How can you explain the budget process as it relates to the state legislature for legislature for MSU Denver? What does that look like month by month or whatever? Yeah, yeah. I'll zoom out and, and try not to send your audience to sleep with a. I, nobody knows what it means. I, I think this is gonna. This is this is partly of why we're having this conversation. You of all people know how to explain it in very lay terms for somebody as, as ignorant as me. So, we wanted to like make this clear, but it's maybe exciting. I'll do my best. <laughs> Put in some sound bites. <laughs> it's nearly a year-long process, especially when you map the internal work that has to happen at the university alongside the external timeline that the legislature has. Internally, we're doing year-round work to project our enrollment, to project our budgetary needs, to figure out how to funnel people and funds towards the things that we know drive what we want to achieve here on the campus. Mm -hmm. Scaling strong practices, ensuring that you know teams have the resources that they need to continue to do their work really well and at the level that our teams are committed to and that students deserve, that's, year, that's a year-long process mm -hmm. and we're constantly learning. What that process tells us, tells me, is what do we need in order to do more of X, Y, and Z? Yeah in order to get closer to our mission, to better serve our students, to support the state's master plan that has certain goals around degree attainment. And that's a brief summary of the internal work that's happening nearly constantly. How, how, I'm gonna stop you real quick. Yeah. How, how does, and I think this is really important for you to clarify, how does our funding and our funding model, even though we're a, a public institution, differ from like a CU Boulder? Mm. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's a great question. Um, George Middlemist and his great team will fact check me on the specifics, so I'll keep it a higher altitude. But what I do know is the truth is that we have two primary levers to pull on mm -hmm. for bringing dollars to the university. Those two levers are state funds and tuition. Mm -hmm. It's a little reductive because, especially in the last two years, we've seen a significant up 
uptick in federal funds, though they're all one-time infusions to help weather the COVID challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, traditionally, federal funding composes a, a quite small portion of our budget. It's really state funds and tuition for MSU Denver, with a couple of exceptions. Compared to big systems like CU, CSU, one of the core distinctions is what we call auxiliary revenue. Okay. It's things like other revenue-generating components of a CU or CSU campus, like residence halls, dorms, parking. We have some of that on the Auraria campus, but the vast majority of those auxiliary revenues are managed by AHEC, the okay. Auraria campus. Would grant writing fall in? Like, would grants fall into that auxiliary funding? Or no? Not into the auxiliary funding. And I would say that's the second most significant distinction between larger or more research, research, excuse me, oriented universities compared to where MSU Denver sits today. Is if you were to look specifically at like a CU Boulder's mm-hmm. budget, you'd see a significant amount of auxiliary revenue alongside their tuition and their state funds. They have the same two levers that we do as well, plus auxiliaries plus a significant amount of research dollars. A lot of that is at the federal level. So if you were to look at the pie chart, our federal funds slice of the pie would be much more narrow than more research heavy institutions because they're pulling on these research grants that many of their faculty might be leading. Some of these schools have whole centers that are dedicated to specific areas of focus of research. You know this better than I do. Um, And that means that they attract a significant amount of of federal revenue for specific purposes Mm -hmm. to drive that research forward. And so you'll see that in certain universities' budgets, which is a pretty significant distinction from ours. Okay, so the state funding is no more important here than it is elsewhere, but um, I don't know what's the, it kind of is, right? Like, I mean, it is, it's- I I was just gonna say it is and it isn't. Um, It's a really important component of the work that any university in the state that is a public university takes on. It's an annual process. The state's budget writ large is limited for a whole bunch of reasons we can get into on a different version of the podcast. (laughs) And so that means that there's a constant negotiation that's taking place around how we can optimize the funds for higher ed recognizing that higher ed is, is a state asset um, and in, is a public good that mm. the state should be investing in. And so I would say regardless of the quilt of revenues that any university has, mm. state revenue is an important component mm. from a fiscal sustainability standpoint as well as a principal yeah. standpoint. Yeah. To your point, though, there are other universities that have other levers, which means that they can place bets in other places beyond oh. the two primary levers that we have here today. And so when we're entering a moment in time in which the state resources might be more constrained than we see them to to be today, other universities might be thinking about how they could increase their research portfolio, how they might look at their auxiliary revenue to insulate that to help cover any shifts in the state funding or the risk of shifts. Uh, We have fewer of those levers. And so you're also right that our work with the state is increasingly important to ensure strong partnership that can be ongoing um, because we rely so heavily on them for our funds. Okay, thank you. Yep. All right, so you kind of talked about, we look at things big picture and kind of obviously uh, uh, philosophical desires, ideological desires, all of these kind of mission-driven things that uh, uh, dictate or impact uh, our annual budget, then what happens? 
So that's all the internal part of the okay. timeline. Okay. The external part of the timeline is the part that the legislature and the executive branch, the governor, controls. And that work really starts in the fall of every year. Quick note, the legislative session, the state legislative session in Colorado runs in the spring. Okay. Starts in January, ends in May. Is that pretty standard? Pretty standard. State? It was different last year because of a temporary pushback due to COVID. Okay. Um, you know, they're evolving and responding just like we were at the university during that time. But we're on a traditional timeline. It's 120-day legislative annual session, mm -hmm. and it takes place between January and May. Okay. If you rewind to the fall, so we'll use this year as an example, fall 2021, the governor's team is putting together their own priorities. Frankly, they're doing the same type of analysis that we're doing here, but on a much different scale. They're thinking about all of the places they would like to funnel state investment, and they roll that up into a proposal. Okay. And it really is just a proposal. It serves as the starting place for discussion, um, but it's a proposal, and higher ed is a part of that proposal. Was that, that, was that Polis's uh, proposal that came out to increase, uh, in scare quotes, nobody can see this, uh, funding for higher ed? Correct. Okay. <laughs> so that came out in November. Okay. And usually with quite a splashy announcement. And in this last fall, higher ed was a part of that splashy announcement. For the last handful of years, the bar, the starting place, when you looked at, at higher ed, is to say, well, we're going to renew the same level of funding that you bought last year. Cool. Then it becomes incumbent upon the universities to make an argument to the universities and colleges to make an argument to say, we need more and here's why. Mm -hmm. And that's what we did last year. And we had some wins. Mm -hmm. When it came to this current year's negotiation, it was progress to be able to say, not only did the governor propose a renewal of last year's funds, but he did also assign a little bit of an increase. It was about a 40 to $50 million increase specific to higher ed. It's not small potatoes. And when the CFOs of all of the public universities and colleges came together, they said, well, based on our analysis, to do exactly what we did last year, but under current year context, meaning higher inflation, changes in wage, uh, no herf dollars, right? That kind of stuff, like the. So no new herf dollars, no new herf dollars. currently okay. being anticipated. But when you just look at sustaining operations year over year, it costs more. Okay. You know, yeah. it, no different than folks' rent might increase year mm -hmm. over year. Um, those sorts of things impact businesses, impact universities, and yeah. impact MSU Denver. And so when we make some estimations around cost of benefit increases, cost of contracts, you know, just looking at inflation overall, we calculated that it's actually about $125 million in total okay. for all of the public universities and colleges in Colorado to do exactly what we did last year. So strictly to sustain under this new higher inflation environment. Wow. And so when you look at those two things side by side, yes, it's true that the starting place in terms of the governor's recommendation was a half step forward from where we typically start these conversations, and it isn't enough. So it was, 
roughly seventy thousand dollars short or sixty thousand dollars short of what it needed to be. Right? Million. Fi- million. Sorry, <laughs> million. Uh, yes, I, I swear. Wish it was only 70, no, 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 no. We'd no, be no. having a different conversation. This, I'll tell you, uh, uh, the last, you know, since becoming the faculty fellow, like money, it's just crazy. It's 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 insane. You know how what it takes to run an institution of this it's, size. It's true, and and that's part of the challenge is when you look at it in aggregate, it's a ton of money. Yeah, and that's spread across every public yeah. university and college, every community college, yeah. every single public institution, large and small. And when it comes down to at the individual level, those are really significant swings yeah. Yeah. for universities, especially universities like ours that have historically been the least funded university compared to other four years in mm-hmm. the state. And so it's for us, it's not even just about maintenance. Mm-hmm. And that's the nuanced conversation that we end up having with the legislature, is that first layer, even to try to sustain what we did last year, the governor's proposal isn't enough. And fortunately, I think the legislature understands that. Yeah. Uh, but then the second piece that is particularly unique to MSU Denver is to say, it's also never been enough. Yeah. That we've experienced historic underfunding and it, that manifests in so many different ways. And so it's not just about maintenance or sustaining last year's operation. We also have ground to make up in terms of the funding that has come from the state to MSU Denver historically. Okay, hold on just one sec. Okay, so um, I, I am understanding the timeline of what's going on. But Sorry, no, no, you're, you're, you know, this is, that's the whole point of, that's how I do my interviews. I, this, is, this is normal. Um, I, you know, like a beer podcast, but there, there's a reason for that. Uh, <laughs> is it? relatively important for uh, uh, the uh, institutions of, uh, the public institutions of higher education in the state of Colorado to be on the same page as they respond to that initial uh, proposal? I mean, everybody's got to be as one, right? Then they kind of break off and do their own individual asks. Yeah, thanks for pulling me back on that. First, I'll chart out the full timeline because I think that's important context Mm -hmm. to the conversation that we're having now. So the governor's proposal comes out in late fall, November-ish. We get a revenue forecast that the state generates overall. It's not specific to higher ed, but it informs what we expect to be available in terms of revenue coming to the state that then is allocated out through the legislative process, including to higher ed. And so those two things together are important because the governor has his aspirations, and then you have to check that with reality to say what resources are truly available. And so that work all happens in late fall, November and December. It's at that time that all of the universities also start to come together and do that analysis that I referenced to say, how much do we truly need to sustain? Mm -hmm. What are other opportunities to do what we're doing better, different, faster? Fill in whatever whatever word you want to focus in on. Um, And can we come together as a collective around a shared need. So that work happens in December in preparation for formal presentations to the legislature and a specific body within the legislature called the Joint Budget Committee. It's a six-member committee that really drafts the budget, frankly. And it's that committee that then takes it to the legislature as a whole, um, becomes the spokespeople for it, and shepherds it through the lawmaking process. The high-level timeline for that is spring. It's the legislative session, but that ball 
the behind the scenes work starts a heck of a lot earlier. So those presentations, those formal presentations to the legislature this year took place in January, mm -hmm. you know, December, January timeline. And then you start to have the one-on-one -on -one or group conversations where you're understanding how legislators are hearing our messages, what their other priorities might be that they're balancing against our requests. And then we start to tilt towards the actual decision-making timeline, which is in March. Okay. We expect that the budget will be finalized by the end of March. And when by finalized, I mean that that joint budget committee has formalized the draft mm -hmm. that they're going to introduce to the larger body, mm -hmm. who then scrutinizes it, debates it. Cuts it up, does it, You yeah. know, they go back and forth across the chambers, they introduce new priorities that maybe weren't part of the smaller committee's discussion. And that process takes about oh, two weeks okay. of pretty intensive work, sometimes a little bit longer. Are there any interventions that an MSU Denver can do during those two weeks, or is it? Always. Always, okay, <laughs> Always. yeah, yeah, yeah. So you didn't get what you want in the in the draft, you kinda, you know how to pull those levers or talk to, or you know, have those, those coffee those coffees, you that's, know. It, that's exactly right. And there's a, a sort of order of operations. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll close out the timeline and then I'll, I'll rewind to the politics okay. side of the house, which I think is what you're getting at with the, with the questions about working with the other universities as well as the interventions. Um, but it's really by April that you have line of sight around what's okay. truly going to be final. And then it's passed just like any other bill. There's a vote um, in both the Senate and the House, and then it makes it to the governor's desk to be signed. Okay. And then the fiscal year starts in July. And then the whole, and that's Whoa. when you, you get the dollars that you negotiated in the spring, you deploy them, and then you start that whole process over around fall um, for, the, for the following year. So it really is a year-long process. All right. We'll talk about politics, but I got one more yeah. question yeah, yeah, in terms yeah. of the timeline. Um, how does enrollment at census date and fall impact the money we get based on that budget? Like, is that because the budget model, right? So actually we don't get those monies until you know, we send our final tally on census date? Yeah, so it's a great question. So we do anticipatory projections mm -hmm. right now. We're yeah, doing that right yeah, now. Yeah. Um, and again, this work is happening constantly internally, but as it connects to the state process, we put a stake in the ground to say, here's where we expect enrollment to be in the fall, yeah. um, based off of historic data, interventions that might we might be running, perhaps we're launching a new program and we think it's going to have a significant impact. There's so many reasons that you could massage your enrollment projections versus just saying, well, here's where we were last year and, and here's where we'll retain all of those students and it will be the same number this year. So there's great rationale to increase or, or you know, hopefully not, but decrease your enrollment projections. Is it advantageous for George to, uh, to underestimate when it comes to that? Not necessarily. I no. think it's, okay, you it's really best to be as accurate as possible, okay. Okay. recognizing that no one has a crystal ball. Yep. And between our enrollment team and our budget team, there's like deep quantitative work yeah. that goes into these projections. And it's a number that we're, we're tracking regularly. It's through that those projections that when the state finalizes its budget, mm -hmm. it makes certain assumptions around those enrollment projections. And then you, you basically get an aggregate total mm -hmm. to say, you know, you, you said your tuition rate is this and your enrollment is going to be, your tuition is X, your enrollment is Y, multiply those together, here's the total. We then go back and adjust that with actuals once we have that hard data. Okay. 
And so there is sort of a reconciliation period yes. that takes place. But during these budget negotiations, you're correct that it's predicated on a certain set of assumptions around what our enrollment is likely to be as well as our tuition. Okay. Um, we got to, I don't want to wrap up just yet. No, I know you're, yeah. we gotta, I'll try to keep this, you know, as tight as yeah, possible. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's let's go back to the politics of it. Okay, sure. a little bit. So we got the timeline laid out. Yep. Explain to me what is happening on campus in preparation for the spring. What's going on? I mean, what kind of conversations are you having? Are President Davidson having? I guess how are you figuring out what needs to be funded and when what doesn't? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question, and that is part of that year-long internal work where we're examining what's working, figuring out what's changing, mm -hmm. and then tying that to our budget needs. Yeah. And so when we know that we have certain academic or student support interventions that are super effective that we want to grow because we're only serving a certain number of students and we know that there's a heck of a lot more that would be advantaged if, they, if we could just grow our, our reach. Yes. That then becomes a conversation among senior leaders where they, alongside so many other decision considerations, figure out where are we placing our bets. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we want to do the thing. We want to expand, but where do we do it? Exactly. Yeah. Because we don't have a, a limitless account to be able to draw off yeah. of, there's sometimes really important and difficult decisions that have to be made where we say, shoot, we know that if we could do these 15 things, we would get from point A to point yeah. B so much faster. Yeah. The realities of our budget is that we're often picking one, two, maybe three on a good year yeah. um, of that laundry list of good work that we know is happening on the campus. And so that's the tough decision making that our budget team facilitates along with our senior leaders mm -hmm. to figure out, like I said, where are we placing our bets? What are we investing in versus just you know renewing year over year? For me, in my work, it's understanding that decision making that informs the conversations we're having with the legislature. Okay. Last year, we saw an important increase in funding that was specifically intended to support students of color, first-gen <sighs> students, students who are Pell eligible. And it was critical that when we went back to the legislature this year, we were able to articulate how we took last year's investment and funneled that towards certain supports that we know directly serve the students that the state told us that money was intended for. How are you getting how are you how are you getting the information you need from the legislature in fall or even prior to that um, to, that allows you to read the tea leaves and combine what our campus needs are with you know the, what what are the feel good stories that JBC is going to cling to this next year? It's one of the more fun parts of my job because it means that I get to be really curious about the good stuff that's happening on campus. Yeah. And it's having conversations with faculty members, with our folks on the student services side of the house, with our senior leaders to find out like what's energizing, mm -hmm. what's working, hearing from students, you know, what programs are they a part of, what classes are they taking that they're finding really impactful. It's collaborating very closely with our university marketing and communications team to know what they're learning about on the ground mm -hmm. and connecting all of those dots so that we're all rowing in the same direction and really elevating the good work mm -hmm. that 
our colleagues are leading on the ground with our students. The nice part is that if we get, to borrow some of President Davidson's work, if we get left enough of the timeline, we can share that information with legislators, with the Joint Budget Committee, with the aim of getting them excited. Yeah, you're priming them a little bit. Exactly. So that it doesn't, come, it doesn't result in them coming to us and saying, well, here's what they've decided yeah. matters to them, where we, if, we're in doing, if I'm doing my job well, um, in collaboration with our lobbyists, we're feeding them enough information regularly that they know what we're excited about yeah. already. And hopefully we're building their excitement around the good work that's happening at MSU Denver okay. in higher ed okay. constantly, so that it's less about a negotiation of what we wanna do versus what they've decided to do, but an ongoing dialogue. All right, what are the asks this year then, right? So we, I, think, I think we're at a spot where everything has kind of come together. Uh, we're going to have to do another one of these, too, because yes. we, we, we got into the weeds in the best ways possible. So, um, uh, so, so all of this knowledge yep. on campus, off campus, has, has led to a pretty clear plan mm -hmm. for uh, what the ask is. Um, what, what can you tell us? What was the ask? Yeah, so specific for the state budget, to higher ed, the ask was an increase of $179 million, okay. give or take. <laughs> and that's not one-time fund, that's an ongoing... That would be, yep, yeah, that would be in, in base, investment base investment in higher ed. And that's on top of the funds that we received last okay. year. So it's, it's a nearly $180 million increase that would be spread across all public right. universities and colleges. Specifically, that would allow us to sustain our operations under this higher inflationary environment mm -hmm. and would continue in the targeted investment that the state started last year focused on specific on on furthering the outcomes of specific student populations okay. that I mentioned earlier and that was an important part of the dialogue again this year too because last year felt pretty monumental in terms of shifting the dialogue where the state for years has had this master plan that is focused on ensuring that every Coloradan, regardless of race, regardless of socioeconomic status, regardless of whether or not their parents graduated from college, is attaining degrees at the same levels. It's a 66% degree, post-secondary degree credential attainment goal that the state has. And there are certain student populations that are closer to that benchmark than others. The state has had this goal for, I want to say now, four or five years charted out in their master plan, and yet the state's investment in higher ed has never been specifically targeted to, to fund the interventions that we know drive towards that outcome. And so last year was pivotal in redirecting some investment in higher ed specifically to reach those goals. But we know that that's not something you can do one year and then you know dust your hands off and pat yourself on the back and say, well, we, we gave them the money to do it that one year, and so we're just going to sit back and see it happen. It requires sustained investment in order to keep up that work, particularly because we're so human capital centric. Yeah. These interventions don't get done if you don't have the people building the relationships with students and really facilitating that work. It's not something a computer can be done with a one-time investment. and so ensuring that the legislature understood that we all have a shared commitment, and I say we meaning the state in collaboration with higher ed, to 
continue to direct funds in the ways that serve students and get us closer to those these goals we have as a state is important and necessary. And so that was a big win that came out of last year's conversations that we were able to sustain this year. Do you think that the state of Colorado as a whole reckon, is the state and our state leaders, right, politicians mm -hmm. in particular, are they committed to kind of increasing the footprint or increasing the significance or the respect, I guess, that the state gets across the country in terms of higher ed? Is that happening? Hit me with the tough question, Sam. You know, I would say that when you have conversations with elected officials, they understand the importance of higher ed, the, the reality that the vast majority of jobs in Colorado require some sort of post-secondary credential and more often than not, a bachelor's. I think there's recognition that that's the reality of our landscape and clearly higher ed is what allows folks to gain the credentials necessary for jobs here. And there's this fact pattern currently that flies in the face of that verbalized commitment yeah. where Colorado hovers around 48th or 47th in the nation in terms of public funds, state public funds that go towards higher ed. It's hard for both of those things to be yeah. true. Um, and, and I think that's the environment we're navigating today is to say, we have these commitments. We trust that the decision makers want to see a vibrant ecosystem that ensures that every Coloradan has what they need to be competitive for the job that they want and, and live the full ver fullest version of their life that they desire. And right now, we're in a place where we need to start making different decisions in order to match our reality with that aspiration. Yeah. What happens now? This is going to come out, uh, let's see, let's say early March. So folks will listen to it and then remind me again of, of the timeline in March and April. Yeah, so we'll be in the thick of it. Okay. Um, it's early March where the Joint Budget Committee will be doing the very hard work of deciding the budget for the state, uh -huh. including higher ed. So it's the time where we'll be working with our higher ed colleagues to make the strongest push the strongest argument for why the ask that you know 180-ish million dollars um, in additional funding for higher ed is necessary for us to be that vibrant ecosystem mm -hmm. that we believe everyone wants us and needs us to be. Um, and so that's the hard work that we're doing during that time while the Joint Budget Committee is actively figuring out what is possible given the state revenues yeah. that they have in hand. Um, and then fast forward a few weeks, that document will be public. Okay. And then that's when the, the negotiation happens across the legislative bodies, where the House and the Senate and members outside of the Joint Budget Committee are debating the specific line items within the budget. Well, um, Casey Gerhardt, uh, I just wanted to say that uh, none of the questions that I sent you were, uh, were uh, I, I didn't use any of them. So uh, that means that we had a, we had a good conversation. Um, no, thank you so much for adding some, some clarity. I think uh, we'll plan on doing these more often with you because and, and when things slow down, uh, you can kind of walk us through maybe what's happening in fall. Uh, I think it's important for, for the entire community to really understand, you know, um, not how we cherry pick, but how do we select those initiatives that are going to, uh, we're going to try to get funded, but uh, ultimately to kind of increase our footprint, increase our ability to serve the kinds of students who need uh, the degrees and the programs and the faculty that we offer here. So 
I'd be happy to come back anytime. Because there's also so many other fun things happening alongside the budget process. We have big capital construction. Yeah, asks. you we have yes. bills that are yes. really exciting and energizing that directly impact our students and our faculty. Yeah. And so, you know, welcome me back anytime. I'll be here. We just have John McCann get on here and you know just excite everybody. You know he's such an enthralling figure. So uh, all right, Casey, thank you so much. Uh, everybody, thanks for listening. Tell your friends about it. Tell your faculty, tell your students, whomever. Um, we appreciate you listening. Thanks.